But thank you very much for joining us. It's great to see you all. Um, welcome to Peace Talks. Uh, my name is Ebony, as you can see, and I'm going to host tonight's event, and we are all very glad that you can join us. So Peace Talks is a quarterly event hosted by Paddington Anglican Church, um, a church where I attend. Um, and Peace Talks, we aim to cultivate meaningful, respectful and intelligent conversations about some of the challenges and joys of contemporary life. Um, so Peace, P-A-C-E, um, it stands for political, ethical, artistic and cultural engagement. And that's what we hope to do together this evening at, and at our events. We've had about 50 of these events now over the last couple of years um, with cumulative attendance in the thousands. So that's quite exciting. Um, and we seek to think afresh the challenges, crises and critical opportunities of our age in light of the old, old stories about Jesus and the long tradition of thought and engagement that they have provoked. So I live and work on the unceded land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, if you'd like, you could share in the chat box um, an acknowledgement of the various lands on which you are tonight. So I acknowledge and welcome all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us tonight. I extend respect to their elders, past and present. For some 2,000 generations, the first people of these lands, now called Australia, have been custodians and caretakers under the Creator, observing and learning receiving and giving, managing this land and its waters. So we gratefully acknowledge their long presence and wise care in this place. We mourn as well the violent wounds done to this land and to the peoples it's sustained for so long. Um, we recommit ourselves to walking the path of humility and friendship, seeking to uncover a shared future. So tonight's gathering is very exciting and important. Um, Mark and Luke Glanville are Australian brothers who have just released a book titled Refuge Reimagined. I've had the great pleasure of not only reading this book, um, but also been involved in the writing process. Um, and this book, it's beautiful to read and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, so it's really truly my delight to welcome um, Mark and Luke here tonight um, to, to chat about this book. So Mark um, is an Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology at Regent College in Vancouver, and he's an Old Testament scholar. Um, Mark's research explores the topic of kinship in the Old Testament, focusing on how scripture calls God's people to enfold vulnerable people as kindred, um, especially displaced people seeking a place to belong. Luke is an Associate Professor of International Relations at ANU in Canberra. Um, Luke's research focuses on international political theory, the history of international political thought, responsibility to protect and refugee protection. Um, so again, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to hand over to Mark and Luke now. Um, and just so you know, at the end um, of tonight, we're going to have some time for questions. So um, throughout the night, if you do have any questions, feel free to write them down so we can ask them um, at the end. Um, yeah, and feel free to as well, if you've got any technical difficulties, as Byron's already mentioned, just send him a message in the chat function. Um, so I'll hand it over to Mark and Luke. Thanks, Ebony. Thanks everyone for coming along. So in uh, July, 2013, Pope Francis visited refugees and other migrants from North Africa who'd recently arrived on the island of Lampedusa 
the southernmost part of Italy, seeking asylum in Europe. And here, Francis prayed for the many who had drowned, attempting the same journey. In his homily, he lamented what he described as the globalization of indifference toward our brother and sister migrants. Just as God asked Cain, where is your brother? Francis observed, the question has to be asked today, who is responsible for the blood of these brothers and sisters of ours? We reply, it isn't I, I don't have anything to do with it. It must be someone else, but it's certainly not I. And Francis continued, today, no one in our world feels responsible. We've lost a sense of responsibility for our brothers and sisters. We've fallen into the hypocrisy of the priest and the Levite, whom Jesus described in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We see our brother half dead on the side of the road. Perhaps we say to ourselves, poor soul, and then we go on our way. In this globalised world, Pope Francis said, we've fallen into globalised indifference. We've become used to the suffering of others. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't concern me. It's none of my business. And I think it's tragically safe to say that, if anything, this globalised indifference toward our brothers and sisters globally has only worsened in the eight years since Francis spoke these words. So to speak to the specific issue that Francis was concerned with here, refugees and asylum seekers, the global number of forcibly displaced people has now risen from 50 million, as it was then, to 80 million. And at the same time, the provision of welcome and resettlement to displaced people by wealthy countries has declined drastically. So Mark and I have been thinking and writing about issues of local and national and global justice for some years now. And we've come to understand that this language of responsibility for and solidarity and mutual commitment with our brothers and sisters, a language of kinship, can be a particularly fruitful way of framing and thinking about these kinds of issues. Certainly there are a variety of other languages available. We can think of ethics in terms of a commitment to human rights or human dignity, in terms of responsibility or hospitality or love. Each of these ways of thinking about ethics is biblical and valuable, but we wanna offer a different approach. One that's arguably both more demanding for Western nations such as ours and more transformative, a biblical ethic of kinship. The deep narrative structure of scripture, we argue, urges the people of God to embrace marginalized and dispossessed people as kin. And this call to kinship with others, and especially with others in need, is a pattern of thought that runs from the beginning to the end of the biblical story. And recognition and acceptance of this biblical call to kinship with displaced people, we suggest, has the potential to generate profound change within church communities, national communities, even the global community, prompting us to repent of our own participation in the marginalization and harm of vulnerable people, leading us to embrace our own vulnerabilities as we embrace the vulnerable and helping us to joyfully grasp new opportunities for transformation. So I'm gonna begin by briefly spelling out what kinship is and then Mark will lead us through thinking about what a biblical ethic of kinship entails. So what is kinship? Well, kinship is our sense of family feeling, the ties of commitment that structure our 
individual identities and our belonging to others. It addresses basic questions of relationship. To whom are we obligated? From whom should we expect support? The anthropologist Marshall Salem suggests that to the extent that they lead common lives, kin relations partake of each other's sufferings and joys, sharing one another's experiences, even as they take responsibility for and feel the effects of each other's acts. In the language of the Yongu people, a people indigenous to Australia, the word for selfish means acting as if one has no kin. We can be tempted to think of kinship quite narrowly as a blood tie, a connection that's natural and unchangeable. But kinship is not only biological and it doesn't remain static. Kinship is often constructed socially. Think of marriage, think of adoption. We speak of an intimate friend, perhaps as a brother from another mother or a sister from another mister. We conceive of bands of brothers in war, brothers in arms. We construct sisterhoods across a variety of contexts from religious orders to traveling pants. And these ties, these kin relationships can be felt just as strongly and held just as dearly as ties of blood. And in many instances, more strongly and more dearly. So Marshall Salem summarizes that kinship is simply mutuality of being. Kinsfolk, he says, are persons who belong to one another, who are parts of one another, who are co-present in each other, whose lives are joined and interdependent. Now, we commonly speak in terms of kin relationships, not only when describing relations between individuals or within small groups and communities, but also when we talk about nations. We speak perhaps of the motherland or the fatherland, different countries remember their founding fathers. And again, such kinship tends to be socially constructed. While some may conceive of their nation in biological and naturalized terms, appealing to ties of blood and soil, in reality, as Benedict Anderson famously observed, nations are imagined communities and political leaders have expended enormous energy and resources across generations, imagining and reimagining such communities in different ways for different reasons, for better and for worse. Yes, ties between fellow nationals are typically thinner and less intimate than those between family members or close companions. The vast majority of members of a national community will never even meet each other. Appeals to kinship at the level of the nation may thus often take a more symbolic or metaphorical form, but we still commonly observe a certain mutuality of being as members of a nation feel that they are in some sense joined together. They belong to each other. They're parts of each other and also parts of the whole. And this feeling of mutuality can be extraordinarily powerful, leading people frequently to lay down their own lives in wars fought for their country and for their compatriots. Now, of course, even as it produces solidarity and mutual care for those within the group, kinship can prove exclusionary, generating and validating extraordinary harms done to those outside the group. The past and present horrors of nationalist xenophobia, whereby neighbors are made alien and foreigners are rendered inhuman, attest to that. But it doesn't have to be that way. Anthropologist Janet Carsten tells us that kinship is susceptible to continuous transformations and adaptations, and so it can expand to enfold outsiders. We see this happening with families, with worshiping communities, and even with nations.
People use this motif of kinship even to talk about global relations. The Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, frequently talks about the Pacific family, of which Australia and neighbouring Pacific Island countries are a part. Again, sometimes this motif of kinship can be used to justify the exclusion and exploitation of outsiders. Think of how Europeans deployed the notion of a family of civilised nations in the 19th century to articulate their mutual bonds and their shared rights and responsibilities, but also to validate the exclusion of what they termed uncivilised and barbaric, barbaric nations beyond Europe and to help justify the conquest and colonisation of non-European peoples. But again, kinship doesn't have to be constructed in such exclusive ways. So reflecting on the 10-year anniversary of the 1994 Rwandan genocide, for example, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan urged the international community to move from dehumanization and toward a stronger sense of global kinship, according to which we accept that everyone on earth is fully worthy of our interest, sympathy, and acceptance. And Martin Luther King articulated a similar idea in a powerful 1967 speech condemning the Vietnam War. Invoking the notion of a bro the brotherhood of man, he urged his American listeners to remember that all are called to be a son of the living God, to recognize Vietnamese peasants, therefore, as brothers, and to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. While such a global vision, like national visions, lack the thickness and intimacy uh, of close interpersonal relationships, perhaps, it still evokes a real and genuine mutuality of being. So hopefully that gives you a sense of what kinship is and some of the possibilities, but also some of the hazards that attend it. What might a biblical ethic of kinship entail? For that, I'll hand over to Mark. Thank you, Luke. Well, it's so good to see everyone it's uh, lovely to see some family members of ours here, some friends, some new friends, some old friends, and some people who I haven't met, but it's delightful to meet you now. Can you hear me okay? I'm in Vancouver and I'm very tempted to shout. The Pacific Ocean is a big ocean, so it's a good thing we've got satellites. So I'd love to just kind of immerse us in one biblical text now. I'd, I'd love to trying to unfold this biblical ethic of kinship that we're arguing for in our book from one biblical text from the book of Deuteronomy. And I hope you'll be able to see, we're gonna to go to a fascinating text actually, what's called an ancient festival calendar. There were ancient festival calendars and Deuteronomy 16 is one of them. So I'd invite you to have a look there at the handout that I think I put in the chat a second ago. If you'd open that up. And in a second, Byron's going to break us out into groups of six or seven people. And I'll invite you actually to do a bit of work on the text. I know that might sound like a drag at sort of first thought, but I know you'll find it really fascinating. So Deuteronomy, just by way of introduction, is a book about kinship, I think. And it's also a book about God's generosity, the generous gift of land and the divine supply of agricultural abundance. And one of the themes of Deuteronomy is that God has given God's ancient people, Israel, all they need to flourish in the land. But Deuteronomy is also a book about responding to God's gifts with thanksgiving. And then the flip side of that coin of thanksgiving is generosity and justice and creative kinship. And just to say, without trying to give the game away too much, that I'm convinced that 
a movement of God's generosity and a posture of thanksgiving and our generosity and creative kinship is really central to a covenantal response in both Old and New Testaments. This kind of movement of the divine supply and our thanksgiving to God and that flip side of that coin being generosity and creative kinship. There's this wonderful quote by a reformational scholar, Gordon Spikeman, that goes like this. Spikeman says, God's creation is evidence of the caring hand of the creator reaching out to secure the well-being of God's creatures, of a father extending a universe full of blessings to God's children. So I think what we're going to see in this text in a moment is that God's generosity frees us to reimagine our life with one another. In other words, God's generosity is an invitation to belonging. So we're headed in a workshop toward one biblical book, Deuteronomy, and we're zeroing in onto Deuteronomy 16. And you can see on the handout this text. And it's a festival calendar, which means it's, a, it's an annual calendar that's timed uh, in sync with the harvest, the agricultural seasons. And it's a festival calendar of harvest rituals. So I reckon this is what we should do. If you have a look at the sheet there, Maybe if I read the text once and then I'll read, maybe I'll read the questions first and then I'll read the text. And perhaps even as I read the text, you can start just to note down some answers on your sheet of paper. And then Byron might break us off into groups just for five minutes. And as a group, um, just sort of work through those questions with the text in your hand, well, on the screen. And though Philip may have just printed it off, which is just genius. Top of the class right there, Philip. And if you just need to be in solitude, that's fine. You can just kind of turn your camera off and mute. So here, you, here are the five questions. First of all, give titles to each of these two sections on the page. And then note any patterns of repetition. And then next, what are some of the themes in the passage? And then next, how does this passage shape conceptions of kinship? And that's a really fun question. And then finally, what did it look like to include vulnerable people in this passage? So let me read the text now, and I invite you just to kind of type, type into the text on the screen, or Philip can jot in this bit of paper, um, some beginnings of an answer to some of those questions, and then we'll fly off into groups and do a bit more work on them. So here's the festival calendar. Now, I should just say that before verse 9, verses 1 to 8 is Passover and unleavened bread. So it's remembrance of Egypt and emancipation from slavery. So they have a much more sober tone, verses 1 to 8. But you hit verse 8, and it's more celebratory. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall feast before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make God's name dwell there. You shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Now the next section from verse 13, you shall keep the feast of booze or tabernacles seven days, when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter. 
your male servant and female servant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Well, I invite you in a group of six or seven, if you're able to engage, uh, just to work through those five questions and, you know, kind of, yeah, work through those five questions. And maybe if we, Byron, if you can separate us. And so Byron's saying that before we go into groups, I'll invite everyone to unmute. Please accept this unmuting if you wish to be able to contribute to the discussion. Those with the ability to display video and who are willing to do so might want to turn your video on. We'll have about seven minutes in the groups. Great. Thanks, Byron. Well, welcome back. Unexpectedly flew through the stratosphere just as our group was uh, hitting its stride and Monica was sharing a blisteringly brilliant idea. Uh, and no doubt all the other groups were just warming up as well. So I was grateful for, for our group. So let's just kind of lean into this and continue to work as a whole group. Uh, I invite you just to kind of turn on your chat there. And so feel free like to type. It's going to have more of a popcorn, popcorn conversation if we're free to type in the chat, I think. So why don't you just type? Um, well, we'll leave question one, but any patterns of repetition that you saw and any themes of the passage, but just continue on as in the chat, how does this passage shape conceptions of kinship? Feel free to just type something there. And also imaginatively, what did it look like to include vulnerable people in the passage? The invitation to Monica to uh, share her blisteringly brilliant idea, but an invitation to everyone just to share the different things that perhaps you were able to share in your small group or didn't have time to share. Let's just see um, a bit of a, a string of ideas. Yeah, the repetition, hey, so there's a real, there's an emphatic nature with this inclusive list in verse 11 and 14. It's underlined. It's a very long verse. The author wastes time, wastes space. It's almost redundant in a sense because it's repeated, but it's repeated because it's important. And Evan is themes of togetherness and festivity and generosity. And I've been studying this passage, which I did for a book I wrote on Deuteronomy. I read a lot of cultural anthropology of feasting and you learn in cultural anthropology of feasting that it, at feasts, people become family together. It makes familial associations. It makes friendships permanent and bonding. And so uh, that's what we see here, I think, as, uh, as this household, extended household, including servants, slaves, stranger, which is kind of refugee, all eat together. They feast together in the presence of the Lord, bringing people together, Ruby. Monica, the inclusion of marginalized groups and the joyful worship is fascinating. In feasting cultures, including in ancient Israel, it was only at, that, at these harvest feasts that they ate a lot of meat. In fact, in feasting cultures, we know that one third of the alcohol of annual kind of consumption of alcohol tended to be consumed at feasts. And so if you can imagine then that people even fast in order to feast. 
and and that the, the fattened calf is killed for the feast but not between the feasts just shows how joyful this was and yet there's this wonderful inclusivism when so much of the goodness of the harvest is shared so we're drinking a third of the alcohol uh the, the, that the fattened calf is killed and shared and this is the moment where the refugee is enfolded or where the so-called slave is enfolded we won't talk about slavery in the old testament here but that would be a profitable thing to talk about too ian says everyone's included in the command and might, one might imagine that to hinder the stranger from participating in the feast would be to prevent obedience to yahweh's command a barrier to faithfulness to the divine call thanks and then Andrew's comment. So that's good, Ian. Just to build on that, it's very. This is worship, right? It's cultic worship. We come before the Lord your God at the chosen place. And Deuteronomy 16 is answering the question: How must you come before the Lord? In other words, I mean, in the Reformed tradition, which is my tradition, we're very interested in the Reformed tradition. In what is right worship? What is biblical worship, if you like? Well, let's answer that question according to the Bible, according to Deuteronomy 16. How may we come before the Lord? Deuteronomy 16 says, we may only come before the Lord if the stranger, the refugee, and the most vulnerable are by our side, the orphan and the widow, which is an ancient trope for the most vulnerable. So if we're, what's right worship? How may we come before the Lord? Which is this, this perennial across the centuries question in Reformed theology and Reformed worship. How may we come before the Lord? According to Deuteronomy, when we may come before the Lord only with most vulnerable people with us, in fact, and at a feast before the Lord being knit together as family. And this, this understanding of cultural anthropologists that we become family at a feast, it, it introduces this theme of kinship in this passage, that this isn't just kind of any old ritual, this is a kinship forming feast, that by coming together before the Lord and feasting, this joyful celebration, we're knit together in the presence of the Lord, as a community, enfolding one another as kin. And I love Andrew Malin's quote, comment in the chat there, this reminder of being slaves in Egypt, highlighting the importance of not to neglect others. In other words, there's this deep mutuality here, hey, to remember and never to forget. And of course, in, in more ritualized culture, to remember something isn't just a cognitive thing, it's a ritualized activity. Do you remember Egypt? There's something to do. And, and the thing to do is, is to live into that identity. You'll always be, God says to his, God's people, you will always be a, a nation of ex-slaves. And you've got to remember that. And the way you remember that is by enfolding other people who are vulnerable and under, in the threat of being enslaved as the stranger was. I wonder if there's a couple of other comments on themes or repetition that people might like to quote, because there's been really good uh, comments and themes repetition or themes or what, what would have it felt like to include vulnerable people or any other ideas about the way this passage shapes conceptions of kinship of course the uh, remember your slaves in egypt as it has this deep sense of mutuality where we we've all survived together just by by a slither by god's grace Well, I'm going, to share, I'm going to share my screen now and just try and um, think, kind of bring it all together for a moment for you. Now, here we go. This is one of my colleagues at Regent College said to me the other day, every time he shares a screen on Zoom, he shaves off three years of his life. I think that's about right too. 
All right, here we go. That wasn't too bad. Only lost one year. Righto. Can you see that? Can you see the PowerPoint? <clears throat> okay. So, so here is, is um, it, it puts these festivals in the context of the agrarian calendar in Syria, Palestine during the winter up the top of our picture in the blue, the grain is growing, the, the, wheat, and the, the wheat and the barley. At the beginning of spring is the grain harvest of the wheat and the barley. But before the grain harvest, we go to the chosen place, perhaps Jerusalem, perhaps even elsewhere, to celebrate Passover and unleavened bread, which is verse 1 to 8 in Deuteronomy 16. And this is a much more sober festival of lament, of remembering suffering in Egypt. And then we come back for the wheat and the barley harvest. And of course, we count off seven weeks, seven times seven, and it's Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And that's the, uh, a celebration of the grain harvest. During the searing heat of the summer months, the fruit's growing on the trees, and we are threshing the grain and hiding from the heat. And then during the fall, we're harvesting the grapes and the olives, and we're pressing both of them to store energy for the winter months pressing the, the olives for olive oil and pressing the grapes to make wine. Most of those fruits weren't eaten in ancient Israel, interestingly. And then at the end of the fall harvest of, of, of the fruit, it's time to really celebrate. And this in the Jewish tradition, it's just called the feast. And that's the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Booze. And it's just full of rejoicing. And you can see there in verse 15 and verse 14, I think it is, it says, you'll be altogether joyful. You'll rejoice. Such joy at the end of this agrarian year. So what, are, and here, I've just circled Jerusalem there to give you an idea that this is a pilgrimage festival. We're kind of pilgriming, pilgrimaging. That's what happens, right, when it's after midnight, from the family farm to Jerusalem, but everyone's invited. It's, it, it's sure the nuclear family, but everyone is invited, and, and everyone feasts on the best of the harvest. Everyone feasts on the best of the wine, and everyone feasts on the meat, and the joy of the feast in feasting cultures is, is immense. The joy of the feast and that is for the refugee, the stranger as well. So here, let's get theological for a moment. How long we got? We've got, I've got 30 minutes. I want to unfold for you real quick a four-part movement that I see in this passage, lament. And I just want to offer that this is at the heart of a biblical worldview, a four-part movement. And I think if we're going to think biblically about Christian discipleship, if, we, if we're going to think biblically about a covenant response to God's generosity, if we're going to think evangelically, if you like, about how to live in God's world, that we have to attend very carefully to the details of Scripture as we're doing tonight. And I want to offer, and you can see if you agree, that at the, that at the heart of a biblical worldview is this four-part movement. Number one, lament, that we grieve what Christ grieves. Number two, divine supply that God has given generously. And number three, that God's people respond with thanksgiving, gratitude. And number four, the other side of the coin of thanksgiving, that thanksgiving results in generosity and creative kinship, God's invitation to belonging. And I think this movement from lament 
to receiving the divine supply, we respond with thanksgiving, but we can't be thankful without sharing what's been given by enfolding God's invitation to belong is the heart of a Christian, a biblical worldview in both Testaments. And we're here, we're just we're unfolding it just from one chapter. So let me just take two minutes to go through each of them. Lament, first of all, to grieve what Christ grieves. Israel's festival calendar begins at the dawn of springtime with rituals of lament and remembrance. The Passover and the festival of unleavened bread in verses one to eight. The festival calendar, it begins with lament, I think, because for God's people, lament is the beginning of newness. It's the beginning of something fresh. It's only as we face up to the world's groaning that we can begin to seek its healing. And how can we choose, teach our communities to lament? And of course, here in verse 1 to 8, uh, there is so much to lament about suffering in Egypt. The bread of affliction is referred to in verse 2 from memory. But lament is the beginning of newness. That's why the Harvest Festival begins there. I think we Christ followers need to soften our hearts to recognize our own brokenness and also to recognize the loss and the darkness that surrounds those who are suffering. And I know that you agree with this. That's why you're on this call. But it's good to sit with it together and think, how can we invite one another to lament? But how can we invite uh, other Christian communities or the church more broadly to lament? When we lament, Jesus is with us. For in his life on earth, Jesus always preferred broken places and broken people. How do we teach our communities to lament? In our own community here in Vancouver, for us, liturgies of lament and liturgies of confession are very important. And finding songs of lament, you really have to look around for that. Feel free to email me for some songs of lament if you would like. Uh, Andrew Malin, your cat's ginger tail is glorious. <laughs> hey, second gift that God has given generously. As Gordon Spikeman said, God's creation is evidence of the caring hand of the creator, reaching out to secure the well-being of God's creatures, of a father extending a universe full of blessings to God's children. In her book, Radical Gratitude, Mary Jo Letty tells the story of a time in her life where she was finding it hard to be thankful. Mary Jo Letty is a Catholic nun in Toronto, a lady who must be in her 80s now, and she, she planted first Romero House, which is a refugee welcome uh, house uh, for housing and advocacy and support as newcomers make a refugee claim. Mary Jo Letty is in the kitchen at Romero House, in this time in her life where she was finding it very hard to be thankful. I don't know how old she was at the time. But a young girl uh, from a refugee family uh, was there with her in the kitchen, and the young girl was peering out of Mary's kitchen window. And the girl saw the garage through the window. And the young girl asked, who lives there? And Mary writes that her world suddenly inverted, turned upside down, as she recognized someone could live there. A number of people could live there, in fact. Mary answered, the car. In her book, Radical Gratitude, Mary Gioletti just reminds us that God's given generously. And you've seen in this text that generosity is all through it. Verse 10, 
the abundance of the Lord. Verse 13, all these expressions of abundance, the divine supply. So let's just, let me offer that the divine gift, God's generous supply, is at the heart of a Christian worldview. Perhaps the second part of a four-part movement. And I think that the generous gifts of God has to be a melody that is expressed, is stressed in biblical preaching and just Christian conversation. So third, third part of this four-part movement that's the heart of a biblical worldview, I think, is Thanksgiving. And here in the passage is Thanksgiving with celebration. That's really fun. Uh, you know, a, a pastor said to me not so long ago that the Old Testament is pretty boring. And it's all full of rules. Actually, I did my PhD on the rules. So I was a little offended, but I didn't show it. But, but what we see here in Deuteronomy 16 is the divine invitation to feast, the divine invitation to gather and to drink the wine and to kill the fattened calf and to celebrate together. An animal is slaughtered and meat is cooked and shared. And you've seen this invitation to rejoice, rejoice, feast, feast. Luke and I, the closest that I have come to experiencing the sort of thing going on here, I think was experienced when Luke and I used to play, we're both jazz musicians uh, as well as well, we used to work professionally as jazz musicians in Sydney and I'm a pianist and Luke is a drummer and we still both play in our respective cities but back then we used to play together a fair bit and we used to get to play in Latino festivals around Sydney and there was this subculture that I wasn't even aware of which are these Latin American festivals where sometimes two, three, four, five thousand people would gather and we'd be up there on the stage and we, we would just kick off this groove, sometimes as the only English speakers or, or white people in this huge auditorium, we kick off this groove and the whole room would move, thousands of people and everyone could dance, you know, teenagers could dance, but they weren't too cool to dance with grandparents and kids and parents. And everyone was moving and there was food and it was so joyful. You know, it was such a privilege to be part of these festivals. And I think that this feeling of, of, of music and of food and of all the generations dancing together is exactly the picture of these Old Testament ancient Israelite harvest festivals. And you get the feeling from some of the Psalms, very much of this musical energy that we experience at these Latino festivals. For example, uh, Psalm 170 is the shortest Psalm in the Bible. And it just goes like this. It goes, praise the Lord, you people, praise the Lord, you nations, for God's steadfast love is great and God's faithfulness forever. And that's it. That's Psalm 117. Bam. But the, it's so short that, you know, it must have been repeated and repeated like the Latino Montunos with all the energy and all the dancing and all the fun and festivity that must have been there in ancient Israelite festivals. It's there in Psalm 117. You can see it. As a musician, you know, this has energy, this psalm. It's so short. It had to have energy and be repeated. So what a rich life God, God called God's ancient people to. This rhythm of harvest and celebration and generosity and welcome. Harvest and celebration and generosity. And of course, you saw that there is also serious thanksgiving in this text. I mean, just to say, how can we teach our people to be thankful, you know? I mean, I, th I think this is the question for us as justice advocates, if you like, which probably most, most of the people on the call are. It's reiterating the biblical story, right? It's reiterating the heart of a Christian worldview. And of course, for you and I, and 
and for all of humanity, is it's not just uh, protesting or advocacy, but it's reiterating the world in light of God's generosity, isn't it? It's reiterating a covenant response in terms of a thankful response to the divine gifts and learning to pray prayers of thanks. You know, our grandmother, Luke and I, and Sarah Goldsmith there is our sister, which is kind of nice. The three of us are on this call. Hey, Sarah. And we have a, a grandmother who died 10 years ago, and she shared with me once, I don't know if she ever shared with Luke and Sarah, he, she had an incredible insomnia. She just couldn't, she found it very hard to go to sleep in her last 10 years. And she shared with me that she would lie on her bed and the way she would put herself to sleep was by praying prayers of thanks. And so she would start off by, by thanking the Lord for her three children, including our mother. And then she'd pray prayers of thanks for her grandchildren, which include us. And then for many other things. And she laughed and she said, sometimes I had to thank the Lord for a lot of things because I found it very hard to go to sleep. But of course, we all know that when we pray, when we're thankful, the things we're stressed about start to melt off. And it's the thanksgiving that frees us up from grasping, right? And from our stress and from our anxiety. So it's so interesting to me that here in this very, really full covenantal text, this Harvest Festival, Thanksgiving has such a prominent place. And I think it's Thanksgiving is at the heart of Christian discipleship and the heart of a biblical worldview. If we're going to teach God's people to be generous, if we're going to teach ourselves to be generous, then it'll start with Thanksgiving, I think. But the other side of thanksgiving is creative kinship, an invitation to belonging. Thanksgiving just doesn't stop horizontal, but the, as we receive, uh, our, our hands stay open in receiving. We also give and share life. It's about creative kinship, an invitation to belonging. And you saw, I'm sure in your small group, the repetition of verse 11 and 14, this list of festival participants and just you, you see that it's the nuclear family but it's also the orphan and the widow which is an ancient kind of trope for to capture marginal people but emphatically it's the stranger who is the person who is displaced and seeking a home some of them would have been foreigners but all of them would have been strange to us in a clan oriented society people who are not of us and they too are to share in the best of the harvest, becoming family with us as they do. What the festival calendar doing is doing, it's saying that these people <clears throat> who you might uh, use as cheap labor, these people who you might be tempted to exploit and enslave, which was so easy to do with a stranger or an orphan or a widow, you're not allowed to do that. You have to treat them and enfold them as family. <clears throat> so, Generosity and justice, creative kinship is a theological and practical response to the truth that at the heart of reality is a generous God. I'm just reading from the slide there. The creative kinship, God's invitation to belonging, is a theological and practical response to the truth that at the heart of reality is a generous God. So I wonder, even if in our, the lives of our household, if we can consider how we might reimagine our lives with one another. I'm sure that perhaps even everyone on this call has creative ways that you seek to do that. Here in Vancouver, Erin and I, we seek to try and be live creatively as kin with 
various marginal people in our downtown Vancouver or kind of city suburb. We have some newcomer friends who we try and live together as family with, and we have some people who live on and near the street as well, who we try and live together as family with, try and share table with. I wonder if for some of us that may, may not be a take-home question. Who do we share table with? Who sits around your table and becomes family with you? Before I hand over to Luke, let's just consider in two sentences, Jesus' fellowship meals in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know, some New Testament scholars have said that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. Certainly, Jesus seems to have done as much eating as he did teaching in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But of course, Jesus is showing, uh, he, Jesus at table two is redefining family. We see it in Mark 3 and becoming family with all the all wrong people from the point of view of the Jewish elite but the right people in the eyes of God. Well, thanks so much for having fun with our workshop and for, for sharing in the chat and verbally in the small groups. Let me pass it to you, Luke. Sure. Thank you, Mark. So we've been talking um, about this, the implications of this biblical ethic of kinship for the, the level of the local community and the, um, the church community. I want to just... Um, I want to leave plenty of time for some discussions and questions. I just want to wrap up by just briefly thinking about how might a biblical ethic of kinship help guide national and global communities today. So we find in the Old Testament clear indications of God's desire for nations. And in one way or another, this surely remains his desire for nations today. Israel was given the law as a concrete model of God's vision for community. God's laws aren't just an arbitrary set of rules for one nation. The law reflects the will and wisdom of God. We can say uh, a bit more about that later, if you like. But let's just um, briefly consider what, what are some of the ways that a biblical ethic of kinship might uh, help us reimagine national and global communities today. So I'm a scholar of international relations. That's the level of communities that I understand best. Let me just offer a few ideas about how biblical kinship might inform international politics. And perhaps this might serve to clarify some of the potential implications of what we've been saying, or perhaps it might prompt some useful thinking of your own about the potential implications of biblical kinship for thinking about issues of justice that are on your mind. I think one, one useful way to grasp the potential contribution of a biblical ethic of kinship for international politics is to contrast it with an approach to thinking about global affairs that's particularly dominant today, which is Christian realism. Indeed, since the mid 20th century, Christian realism has been the clearest and most thoroughly developed model for Christians, indeed for anyone wanting to think about and contribute to global politics. And a wide range of public figures from George Bush and John McCain to uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton all have cited Christian realism as being influential in their thinking about international affairs. And I think it's really an approach that's seeped into the Christian imagination. As it's presented by its most famous proponent, proponent Reinhold Niebuhr, Christian realism emphasizes the reality of human sin, the perils of idealistic projects, the inevitability of international competition and conflict and thus the virtue of each state carefully pursuing its national interest. The argument often goes that 
since the selfishness of other states is unrestrained, our states need to be selfish too. At its best, Christian realism offers vital insights. It reminds us of our fallen nature and the temptations of power. It uh, reminds us of the limits of our human understanding, the dangers of seeking to remake the world in our image. It calls us to humility. And Christian realists have been particularly quick to call out the imprudence and the injustice of foolish and reckless wars over the past decades. But Christian realism risks encouraging complacency and moral compromise. But thankfully, it turns out that the relentlessly fearful description of international reality that Christian realists present is inaccurate. States don't always and inevitably and ruthlessly pursue their own strategic and economic interests. We can think of many examples of sustained international change, complex and imperfect examples, but I think still positive examples, such as the end of colonialism, a global prohibition of the slave trade, the application of international pressures to end apartheid, uh, or the use of landmines or other um, indiscriminate weapons of war. We can think about how states agreed to an international refugee convention in 1951, and how they agreed in 1967 to make that the provisions of that convention applicable to all refugees all over the world. We think about how states managed to cooperate to welcome um, into their uh, communities more than 2 million Vietnamese refugees in the 80s and 90s. And the possibilities for neighbour-loving behaviour in global affairs then, I think are, are greater than Christian realists tell us. And the relentless pursuit of security and economic gain that we so often see in international life needs to be understood as a choice that's made by political leaders. It's not a moral necessity and we shouldn't uh, justify it as one. How much more beautiful would it be if states were willing to accept risks and costs for the sake of their vulnerable global kin rather than constantly obsessing about their own vulnerability? And the church can play a vital role in this. Individual Christians and politicians, church communities and denominations, faith-based domestic and transnational advocacy movements have a strong record of acting as norm entrepreneurs, to use a term from international relations theory, throughout history, encouraging and shaping not only national but global change, often, though sadly not always, in the direction of justice. So, how might this biblical ethic of kinship play out today? Well, I think there's much to be gained in thinking about war in terms of the violence that it does to our global kin, our brothers and our sisters, all of whom are called into family with God, just as Martin Luther King did. It certainly calls into question the justice of Australia's expressed desire to become a major arms trader on the world stage, which would see us profiting from wars waged among our distant brothers and sisters. We might think about how an ethic of kinship might reshape existing exploitative international economic rules and practices and trade relations between the rich and the poor. Think of how it might provide a fruitful guide for thinking through the global distribution of COVID vaccines. And think about how climate change is making our globally shared vulnerabilities and dependence on each other, our global kinship, clearer and clearer. What should that mean for how we act? So our Prime Minister talks about the Pacific family. How then should we work to prevent and respond to the potential mass displacement that is confronting our Pacific Islander kin 
whose homes and communities are threatened by rising sea levels. And in our book, Mark and I suggest that a biblical ethic of kinship can help us reimagine refuge globally in numerous ways. Perhaps by helping us reimagine the meaning of our national identities so that the stranger in need is no longer seen as a threat, but as someone whose welcome is central to who we are. Perhaps by helping us reimagine the sovereignty and the boundaries of our states as opportunities for doing justice rather than justifications for exclusion. Perhaps by helping us acknowledge our tendency to want to play the role of white saviors rescuing some foreigners who wait patiently in refugee camps in the global south while we remain reluctant to recognize our shared humanity and kinship with those who take matters into their own hands pursuing their own strategies for survival paying people smugglers crossing borders and asking for asylum and protection in the global north including in australia or perhaps it can help us uh, reckon in some way with our troubled settler colonial pasts and our troubling ongoing injustices of today by seeing the welcome and care of our global kin in terms not of charity and discretionary generosity that we might choose to undertake but of necessary reparation and repentance so i'll leave it there thank you very much mark and i both are really keen to hear any comments or thoughts or questions that you might have Thank you. Um, yeah, if you have any questions, please post them in the chat. Um, we'd love to get some questions going. Um, perhaps while people are thinking of a question, I might throw one out there to start with. Um, so I'm a refugee advocate, so I get lots of questions um, from a, a range of people. Um, one of the questions that I get most is, you know, sure, it's great to you know care about people and offer people help, but um, but there must be some limit, like we're going to be flooded if we help everyone. Um, what, what, what would you say to that? Uh, I'll, I'll have a go at this one. It's a good question, Ebony. I think it's, it's, it's vital that we have some perspective on this. We, we often feel, I think, in the West that we, and we use this kind of language, like we're being flooded with swarms of refugees, kind of language that often dehumanizes refugees. But the fact is that thinking globally, 85% of the world's refugees aren't in the West. They're all in developing regions of the world, such that the weakest and the poorest states in particular, bear so much of the bulk of responsibility for taking care of and welcoming and providing temporary or permanent homes to refugees. Um, they take in much larger numbers of uh, refugees than we do and, and asylum seekers. So, uh, a couple of years ago, for example, Lebanon, Lebanese schools, half of the kids in Lebanese schools were Syrian refugee kids. So I think we just need to get some sensible perspective on this. We're in a situation where uh, 80 million people around the world are forcibly displaced and the global community resettles less than 1% uh, of those uh, forcibly displaced peoples in any given year. And the numbers have been going down and the percentages have been going down over the last five years. Um, yeah, that's my initial response. Did you want to add anything, Mark? 
Um, thanks, Luke. I actually have another question for Luke, sorry. Um, so Luke, you mentioned that Australia is failing to treat our global neighbours as kin in a variety of ways. Um, which of these issues, in your opinion, is most urgent cool. and which is most amenable to change? Yeah, wow. I'm, I'm currently starting writing a book on the ethics of prioritisation, which is about exactly that, which is how do we prioritise which among the many global problems to address at a given time. I, th I think, um, like, there's, there's, it, it's a big question. My immediate thought is climate change is an urgent issue that feeds into so many other issues. Uh, and so at the very least, we need to be taking that very seriously and doing what we can to be addressing that, not only um, for the sake of the global climate, but because of the ways that global, uh, that, that climate change increases uh, migration. In, and it's already doing so and will continue to do so in extraordinary ways. The, the, our present figure of 80 million forcibly displaced people isn't going, going, going to go down anytime soon unless uh, states radically change their approach to migration issues and also their approach to the global climate. Climate change uh, is already increasing um, instances of armed conflict around the world due to food insecurity, due to migration flows that cause instability in developing regions of the world, uh, due to issues of water security. Um, so I think at the very least, it's a, it's a very good place to start. I've, I've just, just to, to give you a bit of background uh, into my research, what I've focused on mostly for the last 10 or 15 years has been questions around responding to genocides and other mass atrocities around the world. And, and particularly when you're working on that in the classroom, students always want to talk about the question of military intervention. Should we be intervening militarily to stop these genocides? And I'm increasingly aware that that's, not only does it usually not work, but it's a, a very suboptimal use of resources. Um, and if we're thinking in terms of prioritization, um, there are numerous ways for states who want to do good in the world to do more good uh, and, and less disruptive good and less destabilizing good in the world. And when it comes to atrocities, I increasingly think the first step is to um, welcome large numbers of those fleeing atrocities. And if states aren't willing to do that, they shouldn't be talking about intervening militarily. That's just a bit of a side note about my current obsession about that. Fascinating. Thanks, Luke. Um, I've got another question. This one's for Mark, flipping over to Mark. Um, it's kind of a two-part question there related. Um, how do you make the choice to do gratitude and hope when the entire picture is quite gloomy? Um, and related to that, what would you say to um, people who maybe overindulge in the lament um, and the darkness rather than, you know, the gratitude or the hope that, that the gospel offers? Oh, hold a second, Mark. I don't think we've got your Sorry. sound on. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't answer the question completely. All one can do, it's, it's a very personal question, isn't it? Um, but I think that if there's a key, it, it's got to be doing it in community, hey? Um, when we're isolated and kind of a lone ranger, um, it is 
uh, it's it's very daunting and it's a low it feels like a very low ceiling on achieving justice but when it's a community of people who are sharing life together in a particular neighborhood in a particular place and trying to spot cultural idols and to push them away and live contrastively and differently and intentionally shaped by the tender way of Jesus finding our place in the biblical story and calling attention to to Jesus tenderness by the way that we live together by the way we live together in our neighborhood and then that's when it can get um, more bearable and even exciting. And so we can survive, you know, two terms of a conservative government. And, you know, we can be because there's hope because we see the life of Jesus among us. So uh, to me, it's, it's advocating not just shoulder to shoulder in partnerships of advocates, but really doing it up close and personal um, seeking to be a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of the kingdom of God in a particular place. Then there's a question of how do we get, uh, how do we, you know, what, what do we do when we get stuck in lament? I mean, it's a really interesting question to me. One of the things we've noticed here in East Van, we sort of part of an intentional community here in East Van that, that Emma Gray, who was on this call, um, was a, a treasured part of, and until she, um, tragically left us a couple of years back um and eb you visit us visit us as well well one of the things we find is that we white caucasians uh when we see the, the grief of the world and we see first Na- nations and settler relations and atrocities and we see climate change and kind of refugee unwelcome uh we do, all we want to do is lament um so, so, and and often that's the case i think with white justice seekers we when we get together, we want to lament and grieve. But one of the things we've noticed is that our newcomer friends, perhaps who have refugee experience themselves, um, so we've even noticed because we can be an overly lamenting community sometimes that the, the and our newcomer friends didn't want to join us. They wanted to go join the local Pentecostal church that had the big loud drums and the guitars <laughs> because they had known enough sadness and they wanted to find something with a bit of celebration. So I think that's very, very helpful for me that when I want to get lost in, you know, the, the latest New York Times or Al Jazeera article of despair, that, that actually sometimes people who have experience of, of real trauma are seeking out the joy of life and the joy of Christ. And maybe we can follow that, follow them to the joy and the guitars and the drums. <laughs> Thank you. That's helpful. I like that story. Um, We're running out of time. I might just ask one last question. um, And it's the question that Monica's put in the chat to everyone. um, And she says, it seems that those who already have a sense of kinship across diverse groups would be advocates for addressing different international or global challenges. But how do we go about changing the hearts and minds of Christians who practically reject kinship with non-believers as opposed to believers? Monica, do you want to, when you talk about practically rejecting kinship with non-believers as opposed to believers, could you just put a sentence or two to that? What do you mean by that?
sorry, just unmuted. Um, it was more about the idea of, you know, being brothers and sisters in Christ. I guess there's a, a lot of priority given to that by some Christians where they actually feel that they have that kinship with their brothers and sisters, but they generally don't, you know, some don't actually see that kinship or that, um, that same sense with, you know, non-Christians, uh, which kind of gives them an excuse to, you know, either not advocate or even stand against some of those um, challenges that other people, you know, might be um, expressing. And so, for example, to prefer Christian immigration to Muslim immigration, yeah, that kind of yeah. thing, Syrian pre preferential treatment to Christian Syrian refugees over Muslims. I mean, it's, we just have to go to scripture once again, I think. And I mean, in Deuteronomy 16, the stranger, many of them would have been non-Israelites, non-Yahweh worshippers. And I mean, I, the Gospels, we see the same sort of pattern. I love it in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler. Um, and the rich young ruler, of course, um, never follows Jesus. You remember, um, he goes away because he's not willing to sell what he has. And, and, and yet it says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mm. You know, and love there is a first century kinship term. You know, Jesus, you know, had affection for him as family. And that's yeah. just beautiful. So we follow the way of our savior. It's yeah. a great question. Um, we've got to 8.15, which is our wrap-up time. And I really don't want to wrap up because I'm really enjoying this discussion. Um, and I must say, I've, I've heard Mark and Luke talk about their book a number of times now um, over the last couple of years. But tonight, I've got so much out of it, uh, so many new ideas and, and new thoughts. Um, so thank you very much. Um, I've, I've noticed in the chat, there are a couple of questions that we haven't answered. I'm really sorry to Ian and Janet who put some questions in there. Um, I might just wrap us up and then, you know, if people want to stay for a few extra minutes to do more questions, then go for it. Um, but otherwise we'll have to wrap up. So, so to wrap up, um, thank you very much to everyone for being here. Um, thank you in particular to Mark, who is in the middle of the night over in Vancouver. Um, and thank you very much to Luke in Canberra too. Um, and thank you very much just for writing the book. I think it's um, an amazing resource for the Christian community. And, um, and I really recommend that people do um, get the book. And in order to get the book, you can buy it online. I've just posted into the, oh, great. Mark's got a picture of, uh, he's holding it up. Um, the, the, I've just posted a link in the chat function um, of where you can buy the book online. Um, and then just to wrap up uh, at the Peace Talks event, um, I, I'm just gonna mention that our next Peace Talks event is on the 22nd of May. Um, and we're going to hear from Dr. Michael Mawson from the United Theological College and Charles Sturt University. Um, and he's speaking on um, a topic he's labelled Speaking of God in the Midst of COVID-19, Insights from Julian of Norwich. So um, I really recommend that you join us for that event. Um, and I'm going to also post in the chat function um, just ways that you could stay in touch with the Peace Talks community if you wanted to do so. So you could find us on Facebook. Um, there's a, a Peace Talks Pado group, um, or you could join the Peace Talks email list. Um, and there's an email in the chat function there, info at paddington.church. 
Um, and if you email that email address, you'll get put on our, um, our database. Oh, thank you, Byron. There's the link to the Facebook group. Um, so that really brings us to the end. Um, so thank you so much for being with us. Um, have I forgotten anything, Byron? No, good, excellent. Um, thank you for being with us. And yeah, I'm really sorry for the people who we didn't answer their questions. Um, I'm, 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 I'm apologetic to Mark because I want to say, if you want to stay around for five more minutes and answer more questions, but poor Mark is in the middle of the night over there. Um, so I'm not sure if we want to do that. Um, I, I could give it five. It's coming up to 1.30. <laughs> I give so it five. <laughs> it's so good to spend time with you guys uh, it is really nice is there a question that you wanted to draw, draw our attention to Eb? um well i don't know if the people who have asked have left or not this is the problem ian had asked a question um that i can read out he says, we are rightly critical of certain conflations of Christianity and nationalism, but some recent books, for example, Yoram Hazani, apologies if I pronounce that wrong, The Virtues of Nationalism is the book, um, say we need to think positively about nationalism as a form of kinship. Otherwise, we succumb to an empire mode of thinking and acting. Does your Christian vision of kinship provide what Hazani is looking for or perhaps a third way rooted in ecclesial identity that think well about national communities and global cooperation, particularly in relation to refugees. I have Fazoni's book on my shelf, but I haven't read it yet, Luke. Have you read it? Yeah. We, yeah, we, we had a uh, wonderful workshop that both Ebony and Byron attended as we were starting to write the book. And one of the other participants told us you need to get Fazoni's book as soon as it comes out. But of course, your uh, going to need to address his argument we ended i, I read it and I, I read um the first draft of a chapter in the book on issues of national identity and i don't think in the end we mentioned the book at all because it it didn't um uh it, it didn't raise an issue any issues that we hadn't uh been addressed addressing by uh dealing with other earlier scholars to my mind anyway we, we really um, question the fundamentals of most arguments you hear about what about national identity, particularly just making the point that particularly for a, a settler colony such as Australia or Canada or the US, um, so much of our national identities have been generated by the exclusion and often extermination of other peoples. Um, and at those moments when we've included and welcomed other peoples, it's been because we need their labour, and then once we don't need their labour, we exclude them again. Mm -hmm. And so it's, to my mind, just a bad argument to say that there's, for one reason or another, we need to put up barriers to the entry of certain outsiders for the sake of preserving this national identity, which is already deeply um, yeah, perverted in various ways. Um, and we'd, we'd also want to question how 
so often when people make this argument about the need to preserve national identity, they're talking about not the identity of all the people, all, all of the collective that make up the nation, but of a particular dominant group within the nation who, again, often have a history of dominating and oppressing other members of that community. Um, and, and we also add the point that all of these countries that are making this argument about the need to preserve national identity have these schemes in place where they happily welcome rich outsiders from any nationality who are ha happy to invest their money. And they, many of them have these fast track to citizenship programs, which tells you a whole lot about their true national identity, I think. So we try and retrieve and reconstruct a, a biblical model of national identity where we say uh, there, there are, there are there's, we're not calling for a, a homogenous um, version of national identity where every nation looks the same, but, and, and there's, there's various goods to be uh, drawn out of a multiplicity of cultures and, and identities around the world. But whatever a nation is going to be about, the Bible tells us it's got to be about uh, an eagerness to relentlessly enfold the outsider. That's the identity of um, the biblical model of the national community, I think. Thank you, Luke. I'm oh, really, there, really conscious. You go, Mark. So there, Hazoni. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're funny. Um, as, yeah. Uh, do you have time for one more question, Mark, or are we calling it? Sure. Sure, yeah, I'm, my, mind, my mind's <laughs> like cloudy right now, so give it to Luke. <laughs> okay, this is, this is the final question and then we'll have to call it. Um, how do you deal with Christian leaders who use their power to change the church from one that is diverse to one that is, that is not um, diverse? How do you deal with those Christian leaders? Start yeah, again. How do you deal with those Christian leaders? Start again. Find a group of people who are seeking to live faithfully into the biblical story in all its wonder and tenderness and start a church in your local neighborhood, starting in your living room and seek to live well. Great answer and a great way to finish because it creates a picture, um, yeah, of a, of a better way in a better world. And thank you very much. Thank you again to everyone for being here with us. And again, I recommend this book. Um, and thank you so much to Mark and Luke. Thanks, Thanks so much, everyone. It was a real joy to meet you. Really encouraging. Thanks, Byron, as well. Thank you, Byron. Thanks, Ab. Thank you, Byron.